Welcome to another episode of the Old Soul Movie Podcast, a show that features backgrounds, reviews, and reflections of some of the most influential movies ever made. And now your hosts. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Old Soul Movie Podcast. Today, we are joined once again by Dr. Vincent Casaragola. He is the former film studies director at St. Louis University. And today, we will be focusing on the film From Here to Eternity from 1953. From Here to Eternity features Fred Zinneman as the director. It is based off of the novel From Here to Eternity by James Jones. And it also features an amazing cast with Burt Lancaster playing First Sergeant Milton Warden, Montgomery Clift as Private Robert E. Lee Pruitt, Deborah Carr as Karen Holmes, Donna Reed as Alma Burke slash Lorene, Frank Sinatra as Private Angelo Maggio, Philip Ober as Captain Dana, aka Dynamite Holmes, and Ernest Borgnine as Staff Sergeant James R., aka Fatso Judson. This film has been so influential over the years. And we also dive into other military novels that were adapted into films during this time period, as well as the World War II film genre as a whole. And I do want to put out the disclaimer that this episode does discuss story content related to sexual violence that may be upsetting or triggering, and listener discretion is advised. We thank you so much for your time and listening to this episode, and we hope that you enjoy. I was just seeing the film again, and um, I've been thinking a lot about From Here to Eternity, and I think part of the thing to understand this film is to understand the broader context of several novels that grew out of World War II and the films that were made from them. And these novels come clustered together at the end of the 1940s, early 50s. You've got First, uh, in 1948, you've got Irwin Shaw's The Young Lions, and you've got Norman Mailer's The Naked and the Dead. And they're very important novels, particularly Mailer's, but also Shaw's. But they don't get made into films until the late 50s. Okay. Uh, Whereas in 1951, you've got both uh, James Jones's From Here to Eternity and Herman Woke's The Cane Mutiny. And From Here to Eternity is the first of these four novels to become a film in 1953. And then um, 1954, The Cane Mutiny becomes a film. And they're both very important films. And um, it's, it's, it's important to understand that these are, people are sort of waiting for the great American war novel right at the end of World War II. Mm. And so... These are a younger generation of writers. Um, I think the oldest of them is Woke, and he also ended up being the one who lived the longest. He died. He was almost 104 when he died. Oh, wow. Yeah, he was He was um, born in 1915, and he died in 2019. Wow. Yeah. Um, all these novels are by veterans. Including James Jones? Uh Yes, uh, Jones okay. was a veteran. Uh, the interesting thing is three of these four novels are by Jewish American writers. Mailer, oh. Shaw, and Woke were all Jewish in their backgrounds. 
and that plays in to some extent, but not a great extent in their, their writing. Uh, Jones was a Midwesterner uh, from Illinois and Indiana. The other thing is he joined the army in peacetime in 1939. And so he's, his novel from here to eternity is largely about the structure and function of the peacetime army and the male culture of that. Okay. I, I think the other thing to understand is none of these novels is perfect and they're coming from different kinds of writers. Um, my own opinion as somebody who studies the literature of World War II is that they're probably all, all too long. <laughs> um, you know, maybe, I mean, we have long novels today that I right. think are successful, but these are novels that are coming from writers who probably had a lot to say and they wanted to fit it all in one novel. Mm. It's, it, they, they were really pushing it and pushing it. Uh, so from here to eternity is, is a very long book. Uh, Mailer's Naked and the Dead, Shaw's The Young Lions, and Herman Woke's um, uh, The Cane Mutiny, all very long books. They had to get good screenwriters to transition them to the films. The film versions of The Young Lions and The Naked and Dead were poor. Really? Yeah. Um, although The Young Lions was, was 1958, was successful at the box office, mm. possibly because of the people who played in it. Um, Montgomery Clift was in it, Marlon Brando. And also Dean Martin were all popular stars at the time. So successful, but, but it's not a terribly well-made movie. Mm-hmm. And it, I mean, Erling Shaw didn't like it. Mailer totally divorced himself from the film of the, uh, they totally bastardized um, The Naked and the Dead. Hmm. What do you think played into that? Well, I think it was, you know, Hollywood's way of doing things. Hmm. And there they had, I think, a much lower budget cast. Uh, they didn't have an A-list cast. Um, and, you know, one of the leads is Cliff Robertson, and he's a fine actor, but they didn't surround him with the best people. And I think that um, for the, the 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 young lions, I think they wanted to get Martin uh, and Brando on screen there. And uh, they were ill-suited, I think, for those roles. Uh-huh. I think of all the films that were made, the best is probably from here to eternity. Yeah. I mean, it's a classic. It's iconic. Even people that aren't very well-versed in film can all name the scene on the beach and what that looks like in their minds. Yeah. And um, Zinnemann was a very dynamic, innovative director. He's one of that large number of emigre Jewish directors from you know Austria and Germany who left Germany and then migrated gradually to the United States. I think he arrived fairly early. It was in 29 before the Nazis took over. Oh, wow. Uh, In part, he was trying to leave what he saw as kind of cultural disintegration in, in Germany. But, you know, he, he, he knew people like Billy Wilder and things like that, but he'd just done high noon. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was at the top of his game. Uh, he fought to get, apparently he fought to get Montgomery Clift in the role of Pruitt. 
What was the resistance to Montgomery Cliffs being in that role? I'm not sure exactly. He was mm. still fairly new. It's a very complicated role. Uh, as it's originally written in the novel, this is a Southerner, a very stubborn Southerner. And um, I think they sort of changed that to just a kind of sort of very stubborn, self-conscious, almost like the troubled artist figure. You know, mm -hmm. he's the bugler. Yeah. You know, you go back to the musician slash boxer that you get in Golden Boy. Ah, you know. Yeah. Uh, and so, so, you know, that's, that's something that is a kind, you know, it's, uh, the, the person who, who has artistry, but also has physical strength. But the, um, I think one of the things that carries the novel is the creation of what is essentially a homosocial culture within the army. Okay. Um, there's an underlying current of homosexuality that exists, both positive and negative, a kind of um, brutality that's almost S&M and a kind of affection and concern and nurturing that's that's very positive. Uh, but the novel, even the novel had stuff pulled from it. It was republished in 2011. With really? Some that were excised. Yeah, the daughter of uh, James Jones saw to it that because it was just too uh, extreme for that time. Yeah. In the novel, the characters of Pruitt, played by Montgomery Clift, and Maggio, played by Frank Sinatra, one of the things they do when they're on a pass is they essentially go into bars and bait uh, male homosexuals get them to buy them drinks and dinner. Mm. They take them to their, uh, you know, apartments or houses, and then they steal money from them and leave. And these men who have been robbed can't complain because then they'd be identified as homosexuals. Mm, yeah. And so they, 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 they play this game. Uh, the character of Fatso Judson, the uh, really sadistic uh, sergeant of the guardhouse, it played beautifully by Ernest Borgnine. There's an undercurrent of sadism that's almost sexualized violence. There's a mm. kind of uh, almost uh, rape-like quality about it. In the scene where you see Maggio come into the guardhouse and you're seen from behind, uh, you're, you're the camera's from behind Ernest Borgnine. He's facing him. He stands up. And he says, you know, well, hello, tough monkey, because you know that he's going to to brutalize him. He mm -hmm. grabs his uh, nightstick with his left hand. And there's something very phallic about that. Yeah. I mean, you got to watch these scenes a lot. I think one of the things that I see, the more I watch it, is the way the, the scenes are carefully framed and carefully composed. I mean, we, we focus on that beach scene, which is you know, <laughs> great. But like in the opening sequence, you see the rectilinear parade ground. You mm. see the rectilinear barracks, Schofield barracks, and you see the rectilinear motions uh, that are the troops, the different platoons marching. Mm. Yeah, those are some of my favorite shots, the, the very yeah. intro. And as the credits are ending, 
Pruitt is coming from the distance and moving into the foreground, tangential to that. Uh-huh. He is marching to his own pace. He's marching his own direction, and it's tangential and conflicting with these rectilinear movements. That opening shot is very well composed. The opening shots in the company office, the very rectilinear shapes there, and of uh, the doorways, the, the rooms, everything's very antiseptic and rectilinear. Uh, you also get that little introduction to the image of Deborah Carr as right. Karen Holmes on, in the photograph on Captain Holmes' desk. And um, you get the sense of control that Milt Warden, Burt Lancaster, has over the whole process. Hmm. He's not in command, but he's in control because he knows the incompetence of the officer. And he hates officers. Yeah. And you know what? It's funny you say that because I feel like, I guess when I'm looking at that scene, everything just feels so intentional. And that picture of Deborah Carr, it really stands out. Your eye goes to it. It's like, she's going to be also different. Kind of like how Montgomery Cliff's character is coming in different. Yeah. And uh, juxtaposed with her are a series of male fighters on the Mm -hmm. wall, their photographs. And of course, we hear during the narrative that she's had affairs with a number of men. So you got her photograph and the photographs of all these men in their boxing costume. So there's this kind of testosterone and this femininity back, you know, everything (laughs) is so well composed. It's interesting the way they juxtapose in the love scenes, the love sequences, the one on the beach with the one where Lorraine takes, when he first meets her, takes Pruitt upstairs at the Congress Club. And first of all, you've got the classic cliche of sexuality, (laughs) the waves crashing (laughs) on the shore. But rather than just cutting away, you have Lancaster stripped to his bathing suit and Deborah Carr stripped to her bathing suit, which uh, by our standards would be street clothes today. <laughs> <laughs> right. But back then that was a scandal, not scandal, but you know, risque. <laughs> well, yeah. And you've got the foam washing over them. It's very sexualized. <laughs> but, the, you know, they run into the beach and you focus on both the front. You've got a kind of mid shot of waist up from of Lancaster, his power masculine power and then you see him from the rear as he runs towards her she's in the surf already it's a very masculine sexuality that exudes from that scene and it's a kind of feminine uh vulnerability Mm. but the most sexual aspects of it are male which is consistent with the way in which jones is conceiving of these characters um i i think that jones was probably bisexual, or at least in the sense that, you know, whatever sexual opportunities came along, and you see that in this novel, you see it in uh, The Thin Red Line, uh, which is even more explicit. Really? Uh, Oh, wow. uh, There's a sexual scene between a couple of the, uh, the soldiers in The Thin Red Line in the novel. But the, the, the main thing is that the narrative is a very male narrative. The women are peripheral, even though they're important. Mm. And in the case of 
you know, Karen, she's a woman who cannot have children. And in the novel, it's because her husband infected her with gonorrhea. She had this horrible infection. She had to have an operation, a hysterectomy, everything else. That's too graphic for Hollywood. What happened was in the in the film, it's he got he went out and he was with one of his female companions, got drunk, didn't come home when he was supposed to. She was in extreme difficulty with the pregnancy. It's five o'clock in the morning. And rather than his going to the doctor, he just fell into a drunken stupor. The baby was born dead and she had to have the operation to save her life and the hysterectomy and everything else. So she can't. So, and uh, Lorraine, who is a prostitute and doesn't really want to have an emotionally normal life in the Mm -hmm. sense of really engaging her emotions. She wants to be respectable. She wants to be proper. And, but she does, she is in love with Pruitt. Just as Pruitt, all he wants is the army. That's his identity. Right. One of the things that's hard for people to understand about that film is men went into the army during the depression because there was nothing for them to do. Oh, the army okay. was not that large. I didn't even think about that. The 30s. Yeah, it wasn't recruiting people. It was an army that was, you know, maybe two, three percent of the size it would be, maybe four or five percent of the size it would be during the war, after the draft and everything else. But in the 1930s, it was small, underfunded. But men went into it because, well, you know, there wasn't a lot of work. It was steady work. And Jones went in in that time in 1939, and he he gives you this sense of this male institution with its strengths and its weaknesses. In the novel, there are these long passages of Pruitt's working in the kitchen under Stark, the mess sergeant, who in the film, by the way, has a very much diminished role. He's the one who tells um, Milt Warden that he himself had an affair with Karen Holmes right. at Fort Bliss, and she's been around the block many times. And that leads to that post-embrace confrontation on the beach. And uh, interesting, the actor George Reeves is the one who would play the television Superman. Yes, that's right. And who is part of the subject of the film um, Hollywood Land, mm. uh, the one with Adrian Brody and um, uh, it's uh, Ben Affleck plays that role. No way. Yeah, I haven't yeah. seen it yet. That's been on my list. But I think that that his story of his death is very fascinating. Yeah. So anyway, this is early in his career. <laughs> the cast in this film is great. I mean, you just overwhelmingly stellar, excellent cast. Of the direction by Zinneman, the cinematography, Teradesh's script, all this, very well done. And, you know, the, the layers of character actors going down, people like Jack Warden and all these other, you know, John, uh, uh, John Wilkie, um, uh, Claude uh, Akins, these people that will become major character actors later on. There's a real ensemble there that doesn't take away from the stardom and the artistic quality of Lancaster and Clift and Reed and Kerr. And the interesting thing, too, is 
you know, Kerr and Reed are cast against type. I was going to say this is such a different role for her. I feel like you see her in all of these very, I don't know, sophisticated ladylike roles. So this is so it's just it's kind of jarring even for me. And like, I'm not even living back then when this was coming out. Yeah, she's um, she's usually this quiet, sophisticated, not unromantic, but not romantically aggressive Mm -hmm. or uh, certainly not somebody who's had multiple affairs. Yeah. And now both in the novel and in the film, she has justification for this. Her, Her marriage fell apart because her husband's a serial philanderer, cares nothing for her. And he's, um, uh, cruel and self-interested and he doesn't care about what happened to her the, in the novel that he caused her uh, through the gonorrhea infection to have this, you know, horrible infection that led to her not having to have children. I wish that would have been fascinating. I mean, I know it wasn't possible with production code and Hollywood, but like that would have just been fascinating to have yeah. seen that storyline been played out on screen. Yeah. And it's, it's a parallel and equivalent way to do it. And I think Teradash's script manages to give a reality that's equally traumatic. Mm. And that's what leads her to these ongoing affairs. But the relationship with Warden, you know, when she explains that to him on the beach, you see how much they really mean to each other. Yeah. You see both their physicality on the beach as they're in that embrace and the waves wash over them. Apparently, according to Ben Mankiewicz in hosting um, TCM. Yeah. uh, One time when he was doing this, this was years ago, he said that they had to shoot and reshoot and reshoot that scene because the waves had to be right and you had to get the waves. And the water was terribly cold. They were both just <laughs> extreme discomfort from that. But when they're sitting there shivering on the beach and she tells him the story and, he, you know, they're kneeling down with each other embracing. So you have, first of all, the highly sexualized scene, which becomes the image of just sexual encounter for the 1950s. Yes, for sure. I mean, there are sexual encounter scenes in the 1950s in other films, but this is kind of like, it just captures it in this moment, the wave washing over. But the emotional connection, the romance and the love is captured when they're actually there and embracing, you know, recognizing the pain each other suffer. And and by the way, um, that scene with the waves crashing over is parodied in Shrek 2. In the opening sequence of Shrek 2 with... Um, uh, I forget oh, Shrek and Fiona. <laughs> Fiona's, um, uh, you know, and Shrek are on the beach uh, and the waves wash over them. And then there's a mermaid in Shrek's arms and Fiona just casts the mermaid <laughs> off into, the, into the surf. But um, so, I mean, you know, it's absolutely iconic when even 50, 60 years later, you've got uh, parodies of it animated kids movie <laughs> yes um and you know the kids don't know what's going on there right I the uh, like as in many um uh, many animated films there's a lot of stuff that the kids don't get <laughs> but in any event the way in which 
the plot establishes itself early on. You've got Pruitt. He's left out of pride from the Bugler Corps because he was top Bugler and because of the Army's uh, nepotism, you know, uh, somebody's buddy got in. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, he's stubborn. Do you know the culture of bugling, being the bugler, or even if that symbolizes anything in the movie? Well, I mean, you can take it as far as you want. I think the thing is, in the novel and this, there's an artistry Mm -hmm. and there's a commitment to that artistry. It's not something that you usually associate with the army, that it's a place where somebody who has an artistic talent can show that talent. If you want to run down a a long Freudian road, uh, (laughs) the sexual implications of the mouthpiece and the Ah, the mouth and all that, you can do that. I don't think that's on the surface or that important. I think it's the artistry. It's Jones dealing with the soldier also has a potential to be artful. And you see that in the novel. You also see it in the film. And that mouthpiece he carries, which was the one he used to play taps at Arlington. Yeah. This is this is special. It's what he uses. The other bugler allows him to play taps the yes. day that Maggio died. And that's one of those moving scenes in uh. the picture. I love that scene, the the tears. Yeah, and it's it's his sense of the male camaraderie yeah. and how important that is and how that emotional texture of building the units out of that those connections is so important. And one of the things you see, Jones wrote a triad of novels about this. One was, the first one was From Here to Eternity, which was a very good novel with its flaws, too long, (laughs) compressed. Uh, Thin Red Line, which is more compressed and probably the best of the three. And then the one he didn't finish when he died that was um, finished by another writer, but it was almost done. He left all the notes because he knew he was dying, called Whistle. And he repeats the characters. Originally, he wanted to have the same three characters in all three novels, but he felt that he needed to get Pruitt killed at the Mm -hmm. end of From Here to Eternity. So he's got a sergeant, a hardhead private, and a mess sergeant. You've got uh, Warden, Pruitt, and Stark. You've got uh, Welsh, uh, Wit, and Storm in um, The Thin Red Line. And then in Whistle, it's Winch, Prell, and Strange. So same dynamic. Same dynamic. And um, ironically, um, the character, the, the W character, the, the Warden Win- Welch, Winch character oh, yeah. in um, Whistle is suffering from congestive heart disease. And which is what Jones died. Oh, okay. Um, Whistle is much more sexually explicit. And, uh, you know, it's, it was written in 19, in the 1970s. So it, it's a novel that doesn't quite hang together as well, because, you know, 
it was in process. Mm. But the the novel from here to attorney has these long sections, like the kitchen duty section, which has this kind of male domesticity about it. Now you only just see fractions of that. You know, you see Pruitt signed in the kitchen, but I mean, you have this is a long segment, and the Pruitt's in the stockade, in. And there's this kind of guy who's always in the stockade. He's like perpetually in the stockade. He's kind of a guru. He's almost like a beatnik. Yeah. It's it's like this highly philosophical beatnik world uh, that is in the stockade. And it's it's a very strange uh, environment because you, you see things emerging there that don't really seem like the quality. Of it. It's like things that Jones learned later imposed on on that you couldn't really put that in a movie yeah i mean it's funny you say that because like even the word beatnik because when i rewatched it just the other day preparing for this i thought there's just such a recurring theme of resistance to authority yes and i i feel like that's very apropos to even the decade this came out in oh yeah oh yeah absolutely and um you know, this was a pushback sort of thing. One of the things, interestingly, to compare from here to eternity to the naked and the dead, uh, Mailer was worried about censorship. And so he wanted to use the F-bomb, but after <laughs> consultation with his lawyers, he used the, the a, a made-up word called, that was F-U-G. <sighs> uh, and various forms of that. So yeah. that becomes a verb, it becomes a participle. Uh-huh. <laughs> In uh, From Here to Eternity, the novel, Jones goes full-bodied F-bomb. And this is before the famous obscenity trials related to um, uh, Allen Ginsberg's work a little bit later. Really? When were those? The late 50s, I think 57. I need to read up on that. I, there was a not terribly good movie made about it. I think it starred James Franco as okay. uh, Ginsburg. But the censorship trials established uh, a much more liberal, open world for publishing. Because if a book was considered obscene by the post office, they wouldn't mail it. Mm. And if you couldn't mail it, you couldn't ship it to people. It really? Yeah, you're not supposed to ship obscene material through the mails. I never even thought of that. Wow. And uh, not that people didn't, but (laughs) if they got caught, they could get in trouble. But the censorship trials of the late 50s changed that. And, um, you know, it was in response to Ginsburg's howl and other works. And what you end up with is is a whole different playing field. But these were novels that pushed back, but they're also films that pushed back because this is the fifties. And though the production code is still there, Hollywood starting to lose market share to television. And the only thing they can do, they, they can do two things. One thing is they can make extravagant big color movies that are either historical epics or big musicals, which they did. And many of the musicals were very successful. And many of the historical epics were successful, though some of them lost money. Hmm but they didn't make as much profit on those because the the cost versus the benefits, but they kept people coming in. So that was good, but they could make a lot of smaller films, black and white films that pushed the edge 
of the production code further and further. That uh, makes sense. You know, producers like Stanley Kramer and, you know, directors like Zinneman, people like that. These are stark, naturalistic, downbeat works of literature, plays or novels that are made into stark, naturalistic uh films yeah like streetcar named desire like there's so many that are coming yeah. to mind now that yeah, yeah that makes and, sense and it's like you wouldn't have seen that as much uh, it's the it's that's one of the reasons why it's the glory period of film noir and so many of these films are artful in black and white as from here to eternity is but it's also very artfully staged uh, to go back to what i was saying about the love scenes juxtaposing cross-cutting between warden and karen on the beach and then pruitt and lorraine whose actual name as a character is alma which means nurturing mm. which is interesting too you go back and forth you take the classic waves breaking on the beach and you break open that iconic cliche and you have the wave go over the couple who are in this tight embrace, you know, wet swimsuit image that's extremely erotic for the time. And you juxtapose that. And then, of course, there's the cliched icon of the person smoking the cigarette after sexual activity. Mm -hmm. Only, you know, it's you, the first thing you see is Pruitt's hand and the cigarette pointing up, which is mm -hmm. rather phallic. Yes. And then you you pull back with the camera and he's lying on the couch and she's with him in a kind of embrace she's pulling back and she puts on her earring which is a kind of code for dressing again mm -hmm. and the the idea here is the the suggestion of some kind of sexual activity i mean even um in the, the film doesn't even call these people prostitutes right they are hostesses Yes. <laughs> and they provide entertainment. And of course, it's that usual sort of Hollywood dodge. Behind the lines. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in the in the novel, it's a brothel and she's a prostitute. And um, uh, but th that carries enough that there was a sexual encounter there. Uh, probably some kind of oral sexuality. You know, given the circumstances, she's still fully closed, but she's putting her earring back on. Yeah. I mean, people are going to read this. They're going to get the implication and they're going to carry it with further inference. Uh, the subtlety of the way the scenes are made and and the way they're constructed is very important. The way in which you start to move into different geometries like. The chairs that Pruitt, the chairs Pruitt City in, in the Congress Club is uh, oval, mm. rounded. It's not like the rectilinear world of the barracks. Yeah. Juxtaposition there. And then you have, uh, you know, the buildup of the conflict between Maggio and Fatso Judson at the Congress Club. That's eventually going to lead to Maggio's death. Now, in the novel, Maggio does not die. Really? No. He gets beaten and beaten and beaten in the in the guardhouse. And he's he's holding out to get a section eight. 
Okay. You know, a psychological discharge. Um, my people read this differently. He really does seem as if he's by the end of all those beatings, probably got significant TBIs. Mm -hmm. And in fact is in a diminished psychological state when he's being shipped home. Mm. And that leads to Pruitt's confrontation with Judson and killing of Judson. Having read the book and seen the movie, what do you, which should you prefer? Like, how did they both affect you? Having him live and being shipped off versus having a death scene? I think the thing is, the novel probably is trying to be more consistent with what might have happened in the army. Okay. Because if somebody dies, you do have to deal with the consequences. Mm-hmm. Mm. I mean, it's just, you know, these are not Imperial stormtroopers. This is the United States Army. They, and th- as bad as things are in this outfit, pushing somebody to the point of death, you know, there would be consequences. Right. And I think that I read that um, that's even why they had him falling off the truck as part of leading to his death in the movie. Well, he's he's sort of. Um, you know, the idea that is, is he's just been beaten to the point where he's dying. Yeah. And um, he um, is an interesting character. I mean, uh, Sinatra is, um, Sinatra works this character in an interesting way. Sinatra is an uneven actor, but in the right role with, with the right kind of material, he can really make it work. Uh, you know, he's moving out of a musical comedy range uh, uh, like uh, uh, Anchors Away and uh, On the Town, things like that. Right, right. He's at a low point in his career, and he really wants this role. He pushed to get this role. It wasn't what Zinneman wanted, but it works out pretty well. There's a quality of almost comic relief, but it's dark comedy and tragic comedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know he's riding for a fall and he's sort of seen as a sympathetic character for his loyalty to Pruitt. Yeah. And, um, you know, there are several people, the company clerk played by Harry Belliver is also an Italian American. Uh, so you get a sprinkling of different ethnicities in this. Of course, the army is segregated. So you don't see any have any black characters. Mm. The World War II Army was and Navy, these were highly segregated institutions. Right. Uh, they were not desegregated until uh even begun to be desegregated until presidential order from Harry Truman in 1948. And even at that, it took a long time. But you see characters of Anglo-Saxon or Irish or Um, in the novel, you've got a Jewish character, you've got, uh, it's a sort of melange of different ethnicities, but not too different. Basically white, you know, Anglo-Saxon Protestants for the most part. But something that would have been more differentiated back when this took place. And the army of that time probably would have, this probably reflected the norms um, but again, the army was small at that time. What really tended to diversify the army was the draft. Mm. Um, 
Yeah, people don't realize the draft, um, World War II drafting and how yeah. much that played into things. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, the Selective Service uh, Act that went through in 1940, over 18 million Americans registered. Wow. Had to. Of those, it's interesting, over 6 million dis- were disqualified. Huh. We forget that the greatest generation had just lived through the Depression, and many of them had bad eyes bad teeth and bad health because they didn't have the resources. They didn't have the food, they didn't have medical care. Uh, they lived rough lives. And so they couldn't, um, uh, they couldn't qualify about mm, the army was about two, about 60% draftees and maybe about 40, 60, 65% draftees and about 40, 35, 40% volunteers in World War II. Hmm. And of that also, of experienced people, maybe, again, maybe about 3% of the army were people who'd been in the army before the war. Hmm. But um, you see people who are tough guys, who are made tough, but also who are, who want to be part of this world. You know, he says, the army made me who I am. That's what Pruitt says. Right. Uh, And it's like, I don't have an identity. I don't have, you know, I'm just, you know, a loose tumbleweed. I come into the army, they make me into something. And I mean, that became, and always has been a kind of recruiting tool, you know, uh-huh. uh, you become somebody, the army or the military makes you somebody, by the way, of the novels of these four novels, uh, that I mentioned at the beginning, all of which were made into films, three of them were about the army. One was about the Navy. Okay. Herman Wilkes is about the Navy, the Kane Mutiny. Gotcha. There are two more novels that are important, but they come later in the 60s. It's Joseph Heller's Catch-22 and Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five. Right. uh, Both of which are made into films, late 60s, early 70s. So they're part of a slightly different era. And so Catch-22 was published in 61. And I think... uh, if I remember correctly, Slaughterhouse Five was published around '69, and so these are these are part of a different era. And it's also interesting that of these novels, of these six novels I'm mentioning, four of them were written by Jewish American writers: mm-hmm. Heller, uh, Mailer, Shaw, and Woke. Heller's novel is the only one that focuses on the Army Air Force. So uh, those are the novels; they were the big novels. And the thing about World War II is the American imagination of World War II was not shaped by novels. It was shaped by films. Mm-hmm. And Americans today don't know the films that well, but they really don't know the novels. I mean, it would be a rare person who would remember who Irwin Shaw is. Right. Uh, and the Young Lions. It would be a rare person who uh, people might remember Herman Woke was a very successful and disciplined popular novelist who had one moment of literary inspiration in the creation of this sort of paranoid character, Captain Quig. And then he undermines that by having to justify Quig's behavior and the the whole narrative structure of um, the um, Kane mutiny is falls apart because Woke does not have the willingness to say, yes, 
there were these guys in the Navy who were career officers who were jerks. Yeah. <laughs> not all of them, not most of them, but there the was reality. Some. And if you study the history of the war, and I've studied the naval history as well as the rest of the history, uh, my God, I've read the the collected history of U.S. naval operations in World War II four times. Mm. And that's 14 volumes plus an index. Wow. Um, You're an expert. <laughs> I'm a nerd. But you see that there were these officers in place of command in important battles that made stupid decisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Battle of Savo Island in August of 1942 is an excellent example of the kinds of captains who really were promoted above their level of capability in a rigid, stratified kind of structure that didn't allow for new ideas. And um, they were weeded out gradually. But Woke has to prove that, you know, he makes Barney Greenwald, the Jewish lawyer who defends the mutineers, but then says, I think you're guilty anyway, but I defended you, that Captain Quig was the kind of person who made it possible for Barney Greenwald's mother and grandmother to survive, you know, to not be victims of an American Holocaust, which is nonsense, because the officer corps in the United States Army and Navy was extremely racist mm-hmm. in the mid-30s, in the 20s and 30s. They were very rigid. So for Herman Woke to make that argument is absolutely absurd, you know, to to create Captain Quig as, uh, you know, a, um, a hero of Israel or something is, you know, crazy. <laughs> Woke's got to do it. But that's because Woke in his whole lifetime as a writer, and he was a marvelously disciplined, productive, capable writer. And he did good, solid, workmanlike novels that were popular novels. But he was far from a literary writer. He had one moment of literary inspiration, scared the hell out of him, and he ran away from it. Uh, that was it. <laughs> I mean, Mailer was a genius, probably the most important literary writer of the group of these people. He was also the most irascible, sexist, and hard to get along with. And mm. I actually met Mailer once. No way! Mailer once, yeah. I, wow. I was in college, and I was on the student newspaper, and he came to our campus. And oh my gosh! Um, I was assigned to report on his <laughs> speech, which I did after we put the paper to bed that wow. night. We invited out with him for drinks, um, and he was extraordinarily rational, calm, clear-headed. He was just somebody who had what I think of as a kind of almost manic personality at times. Mm. I mean, he was up and down, in and out. But he had real literary genius. Uh, was extraordinarily controversial, extraordinarily irascible, could be very violent. But he made a major contribution to American literature. You don't have to like him as a person, but his corpus of work is important. Right. Um, James Jones got kind of trapped in telling the same story over again and over again with Gordon, Pruitt, and Stark in different forms. He had to tell that war story. Mm-hmm. You know, Kurt Vonnegut had to tell the Dresden story. Right. I really think his best novel is his first novel, which is a sci fi satire called Player Piano. 
Yeah. The woke became a very competent, very capable, and, you know, normal sort of guy, lived a good life, stayed married to the same woman, uh, you know, all that. Uh, you're the kind of guy you want to live next door to. You don't want to live next door to Norman Mailer. <laughs> say that uh, Herman Woke made a great contribution to American literature. Mm. He didn't. Yeah, uh, that's interesting. To James Jones, I think his novels are an important set of works in what I call uh, neo-naturalistic literature of World War II. Because it is, they're strongly naturalistic. In the tradition of literary naturalism from late 19th, early 20th century, people like Jack London, people like Theodore Dreiser, people right. like um, Stephen Crane. Ah, yeah. Uh, and in, in writers like Hemingway, Fitzgerald, um, uh, Faulkner, and others in the early part, uh, Cather, um, Edith Wharton, all these writers, there were elements that naturalism continued into the 20th century interwoven with modernism and a kind of neo-romanticism. Um, so Jones was, a, I'd call a neo-naturalist. There are elements of neo-naturalism in Mailer's earlier work, but he becomes a much more experimental writer. And gotcha. plays with perspective, plays with narrative form in ways that are exceptional. And then when you get to, Erwin Shaw is a, another workmanlike writer. I uh, was also somebody who was a script writer, drama writer, et cetera. Oh, really? Yeah. And, and he, he was good at what he did. And but he's not again, this is not something that's going to be remembered as great literature. There are works that Mailer wrote like Armies of the Night. Uh, Why are we in Vietnam? I'm, I'm losing touch with some of the new <laughs> works of Fire on the Moon, things like that. He'll always be controversial. He'll always be a site of intense debate you can't deny his sexism his tendency uh -huh. towards violence his hyper machismo all that on the other hand consistently politically leftist uh -huh. uh, despite all its flaws and being way too long the naked and the dead is a very brave novel because uh -huh. it's explicitly leftist at a time when that was a dangerous thing to be yeah you know i mean he's 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 speaking truth to power He's just got too many words in the speech. Uh, but I mean, but you get back to Jones. Jones, in a sense, is like Pruitt. The army made him. Mm. And so his corpus of work is smaller. And what's really important is this arc of these three novels that shows that experience. He wrote some excellent nonfiction as the commentary in a work called World War II. Oh, cool. That was a collection of art by artists during the from the wartime and his commentary is very clear and incisive it's from i think this book came out in 1974 and uh he talks about something called the evolution of the soldier it's very very insightful about the psychology of what it means to be a soldier yeah and he, was a, he was a combat soldier mailer was in combat. He was, uh, a, he volunteered to be in a reconnaissance unit. He was in combat. Um, Jones was in combat. Uh, Woke was in combat too. He was a naval officer on a ship in um, multiple engagements. And uh, 
I don't know if Shaw was actually in combat. I don't think so. He was he was more in the world of doing writing for the military. It's so significant to me that all these writers actually did see combat, actually were involved in the military. And that reminds me, I want to circle back to something you mentioned with the novels coming out, the war novels coming out, but then also movies being so influential because movies, they're you know shorter or accessible. I was curious if, okay, so I forget the exact years, but the United States Office of War Information, OWI's Bureau of Motion Pictures. Mm-hmm. So that ended in what year? I think it probably would have been sometime in 45. What might have been gone on into 46, but that's uh, what you I know, thought. It might have been carried on through the budget year. Okay. So how did the actual military still influence movies like this from here to eternity or these other adaptations? Well, the way they influenced it was it was hard to make a movie that involved the military mm-hmm. without getting the sights, the equipment, etc. You could, right. but it was very hard. Robert Aldrich, who wanted to make anti-war films, made the film Attack, and it suffers visually from the fact that it doesn't get cooperation from the military. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just like, um, it, it, so it, it, it's constrained by that. You, you had to, to some extent, buy into the party line. As I've talked about before, and as I've written about, there are four films that came out in 49 mm-hmm. that I call the quartet. And generally, film scholars who study the war films agree about this. One for the Air Force, one for the Army, one for the Marine Corps, one for the Navy. And they were all designed to kind of ramp up enthusiasm for the various services and loyalty to the services for the growth of the Cold War. And Hmm. um, the the Air Force won 12 o'clock high, the Army won battleground, uh, the Marine won Sands of Iwo Jima. And the Navy one was task force. And they were all based on uh, military doctrines. In other words, the Air Force one is based on strategic bombing. It advocates for strategic bombing. Um, The Army one advocates for continuing to have a strong army because you never know when you may need it. Uh, The Marine Corps one advocates for the Marine doctrine of having elite assault troops that you have to have who can do the really tough work. And, you know, the the Congress thought about merging the Marine Corps with the Army. Oh, wow. Post-World War II as a way of saving money, something the Navy didn't like. (laughs) Um, The Air Force was, you know, it just become a separate service in 47, National Defense Act of 1947. And then finally, you know, the Navy... Uh, Task Force is a film about naval aviation, aircraft carriers, so the importance of aircraft carriers. The interesting thing about World War II is America perfected a number of tactical, operational, and strategic modes that were unique to World War II and weren't used much afterwards. Mm -hmm. Strategic bombing became nuclear bombing, became rockets, etc., the army, you know, continued with the mode of the armored assault, armored infantry, artillery, and close air support structure they used in Northwest Europe. 
which worked to some extent, the Marine Corps with the idea of uh, assault troops, amphibious landings. We haven't really used that much outside of once in Korea. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, the Navy, you know, continue with aircraft carriers and submarines eventually becoming nuclear submarines. Mm-hmm. And the utility of some of those strategies has been questionable to some extent. Um, it costs a lot of money in the past 70 years or so. But the, the, the point being, those four films were made to help those services. And in each case, they advocate for a doctrine. And so that's a ground against which further films are made. These further films that you're seeing come from all directions. They come from plays. They come from just scripts. Uh, they come from the idea of somebody wants to make a film about a particular battle or something like that. But it's the these big books that were the American novels of World War II. Hollywood said, well, we got to make these in the films because they were very popular at the time. Making Mailer's book into a film was much harder because of the structure of the book and the length of the book. You could compress the narrative of From Here to Eternity. Um, Herman Wokes is a long bildungsroman of the young character, uh, Willis Keith, who's the young officer who comes of age. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's a bildungsroman. It's a coming of age novel. And you can handle that. When they put it on stage as the Kane Mutiny Court Martial, they just did the court martial, which is uh. probably the best part of it. <laughs> uh, it's the the rest of the movie kind of lacks cohesion the young lions is sort of a saga and it's okay but it's you know it's not anything mailer's the naked and the dead is a flawed overwritten powerful novel and the segment about the long patrol is excellent from the best combat writing world war ii from here to eternity is a novel about men in the army, men with men. And the war part of it is only at the end. Right. And it's more about the culture of the pre-war army. And in some ways, that's better. Yeah, it's a unique perspective that I don't think you see very often in war movies or military movies. Yeah, it's just so interesting to me then, especially from here to eternity, because it's peacetime up until the Pearl Harbor attacks. So you're focusing on I really the personal lives. And I think that I can see where that would come into conflict when you are, again, working with the military to get the support for the materials you need, the machines and planes or whatever you need. So I can see where maybe, I don't know if there was conflict during filming between army, military, and well, they production. had to film there at Schofield Barracks right. and things like that. They made some adjustments. In the novel, Captain Holmes gets promoted. He's not faulted. Oh, wow. You know, it's like, yeah, you're a jerk. We'll promote you. Mm-hmm. In the film, he's told he's going to be court-martialed or he has to resign. Mm-hmm. So the film does something that the novel doesn't. That sort of says, well, really, yeah, we had some bad apples. But the upper officer corps will bring justice, you know, the institution. And there's a lot of praise of the army, you know, that, you know, this is an institution that's important. It makes men into men. It's a very male movie. It's a very male narrative. 
the women are there as not decoration, but to draw out certain aspects of the maleness. And that very maleness has to rotate back into the army, though. Warden is not going to become an officer. He has to tell Karen goodbye. And Pruitt has to go back to prove himself to be back with the outfit. He's got to go back to be part with his people. Uh. And, you know, so the women are a refuge that allows the men to have an emotional sustenance that allows them to go back and be with the men. Interesting. Um, the romance does not transcend the, the commitment to that male institution. And the importance of that male institution is part of the structure. I think that's part of the tone that carried it for getting some military support. That now, makes Miller's sense. novel wasn't going to get military support because <laughs> uh, it was clearly, I mean, uh, one of the main characters is a general who's essentially a crypto fascist. Mm. And um, he's, he's very cruel. And, you know, it's a very, very pointed critique of the culture of the army. And Woke's novel has to celebrate a character who's really a bad guy in order to say the Navy's really okay. And you go, his later novels, uh, Winds of War and War of Remembrance, do that big time, especially with the character. Those are made into made-for-TV movies starring Robert Mitchum as, uh, I forget the character's name, except his nickname was Pug, <laughs> the name of an Admiral Wainsworth in... Um, uh, World War II. You know, those are big, brawling saga novels, mm -hmm. and they made great 1970s style television miniseries, um, mm. and they're overblown. There's too much, too much going on. There's, oh, interesting. They're, they're like nighttime soap operas were in the <laughs> 1970s, you know. It's not the stuff of great art, either in literature or in film or television. But it's workmanlike, competent work. You know, I don't mm -hmm. want to make it sound like I think <laughs> Herman Woke is a fool. Uh, he wrote consistently over 80 years. He wrote a lot of work, and it's solid, competent fiction work and nonfiction work. He wrote, a, he was very loyal to the state of Israel. He wrote a lot about being Jewish, a lot about religion, uh, you know, not like Mailer, you know? Right. Uh, there's a lot to praise about the person and about the work. But as a literary scholar, you can say, ah, yes, Herman Woke. We're going to teach a seminar on Herman Woke. <laughs> yeah, just different. Maybe at the Naval Academy. I don't know. <laughs> but the I think of all the films, of all the novels and all the films that were made from them, probably the best is From Here to Eternity. Best directed, best shot, best written, best acted of all these. So I have a question about the ending. I think it's so interesting that it's so male centric and there's all of these themes and highlights around masculinity, but then it ends with the two women. What do you think that that's about in terms of the storytelling and also the contrast between those two women? It's, it's an interesting ending, both in the book and the film. And notice that she throws the lays into the water 
And again, the geometry is interesting. They're circles. Yes. Yeah. Not rectangles, you know, there's something that you have to carry forward with those women because the men become men with men. Mm. They become involved with the women and the women's job is to carry the memory of men. Mm-hmm. Mm. They are, they are ultimately story carriers. You know, they are the one. And of course, in the case of Alma Lorraine, her story is fictional. She says, yeah. I was engaged to a bomber pilot who tried to take off his bomber and they blew him up on the, the tarmac there. Mm-hmm. And he got the silver star and his mother's going to give it to me. And it's like, you know, there's Karen nodding and saying, yeah, gee, that's terrible. Your loss and all that. <laughs> and he, he was named he's Southern people, very important people. And he was named for a Southern general. Yeah. Yeah. Robert E. Lee. And then Pruitt. You know, <laughs> it's wonderfully timed. Yeah. And just the, the look on her face, you know, and then they, she throws the, the light bulb. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, we have to. Um, we have to tell ourselves these stories. Mm-hmm. We have to support the fiction of the greatness of men in war. That's mm. part of our job. But it's we, we both know that that's not true. It's a contrast. And it's a very interesting tool in the novel, I think, and in the film. It suggests you don't know what's going to happen to Karen. You can't see her having much of a future with Holmes, but you right. don't know what she's going to do. Interestingly, she's used to a certain kind of lifestyle because she was the wife of a captain. Right. Uh, which is army aristocracy, sort of, right? the <laughs> officer's wife. Whereas Alma was a prostitute, but she's got a stocking full of money. Mm-hmm. She's going to go home and get respectable. It would be interesting. Or some contemporary writer, <laughs> a Karen and Alma, and reconceive them. What do they do when they get to the states? Oh, it's a fa- it's a fascinating thought. You know, it's like where do you carry these people? What would happen to them? And you know, it could be an interesting contemporary novel in which women who have been deprived of their power take on power in a new way. And what would they do? You see them working in a defense plant during the war or doing something else. You just don't know. Huh. It, it, it's an interesting idea. Actually, the, um, the mess sergeant character in Whistle has a brief affair with a woman who's, I think, working in a defense plant. And she's very aggressive and demanding and, you know, doesn't take shit from anybody. Yeah. Uh, so his characters evolve in terms of gender issues like that. But in the film, you know, I think part of it is this sense of pathos, this sense of hope and loss and the stories we tell ourselves to keep going. It's interesting about Donna Reed. I mean, she won, you know, this is George Bailey's wife from, uh, you know, it's a wonderful life. Right. I, th- I don't think a lot of people know that, but I mean, that's her. It's an, again, totally different role. <laughs> she did some darker roles in the 50s. Uh, this was probably the darkest one. Uh, she played a journalist in something called Scandal Sheet, 
where she was a little darker, played in a Richard Widmark Western called Backlash, where she's kind of a pretty tough, uh, ornery character. And she plays the angry sister of the deceased Elizabeth Taylor character uh, who doesn't want to give custody of the child to uh the van johnson character in last time i saw paris yeah 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 so i mean there, there was getting a tougher edge there and then of course she had the donna reed show for eight years <laughs> where she was the perfect wife and mother in the american suburbs to her doctor husband and her kids she really did it all <laughs> yeah and she ended up i think her career ended up on dallas oh uh, yeah was, uh one of the ewing family i think the thing is along with everything else from here to eternity becomes an iconic film moment. It's important in the Lancaster corpus of films because Lancaster commits himself with his agent, uh, hacked and uh, eventually with Hill into doing all these films, some of which he stars and some of which he doesn't. Well, is this one of his first more serious roles? Would you say? Uh, yeah. I mean, in the killers, mm-hmm that's a pretty serious role and brute force. I mean, but getting out of just the, the tough guy, um, but he's making these films in the, uh, for example, he, he, well, he develops his own production company, which is something that's newer in the fifties. Uh, oh, wow. They're putting together the packages. First it's Hecht and Lancaster. Uh, Harold Hecht and also James Hill. Then it's it's um, Lancaster and Hecht in uh, what's called Norma Productions, uh, which later became Hecht Lancaster. And they had a deal with with the studios. But you look at some of the things like Marty, which is not the kind of film you usually associate with. He didn't he didn't play in it, but he produced it. It's a drama, but it's sort of an upbeat drama beautiful uh, and it won Ernest Borgnine the Academy Award for playing this um kind of this overweight butcher Italian American who longs for love uh, in New York different than uh different than this role <laughs> yeah and then you have things like one of the last films they did was Birdman of Alcatraz they did a, uh, a version of the the um uh, George Bernard Shaw play The Devil's Disciple. Uh, there's a very interesting, not well-known film called The Young Savages that came out in 61. That's about young gangs in New York where he plays a prosecutor. Oh, wow. But then again, the other films he's doing at the same time that are not produced by by this, films like, oh, Elmer Gantry, Judgment at Nuremberg, uh, you know, he's he's in a lot of really good films. And I think he's somebody who, you know, people tend to look at him and say, here's this very physical. If we, he projects such physical energy. But oh, for sure. Very emotionally sensitive actor. And I think one who is underrated in his artistry, both as a filmmaker overall and as an actor. Yeah, I mean, that combo makes the Milton Warden character come to life, to me at least. Oh, yeah. And 
there's like he's in the 1952 he's in the william ing uh, the film of the william ing play come back little sheba he's in um what am I thinking of? He's in that uh, submarine movie. I think he produced this run silent, run deep. It's mm. late in the career of Clark Gable. Plays mm. Clark Gable, co-starring. Um, he's in the Rose Tattoo with Anna Magnani. He does the, he used to be in the circus when he was young. He does oh, no way. Trapeze with Tony Curtis. It, it, he, um, he does the Rainmaker. He does the gunfight at OK Corral. He does all sorts of things. He's all over the map in terms of different genres of film, war films, romantic films, dramas, uh, you know, things like separate tables, you know, and um, Westerns like The Unforgiven or uh, Apache or later films like Seven Days in May, which is John Frankenheimer film. So, I mean, I think. That period, well, first of all, that period in Hollywood is a very strong period. Mm -hmm. Lancaster's at the top of his game. Zinneman's at the top of his game during that period. I mean, this whole cast is so versatile. Yeah. And I think people look back at the 1950s with distorted historical lenses. Yes, it was a time of the growth of suburbia, but the majority of Americans still lived in cities within the limits of cities. They did not live in the suburbs. Mm -hmm. Majority of American population didn't, were not living in the suburbs until the seventies. It was still a time when a lot of people worked in factories, though it was interesting to have dramas about white collar workers post-war. And people were always talking about conforming. It was a conformist time. It was a consumerist time. All that is true. It was a red scare time. It was the McCarthy era, all that. But it was also a time of artistic pushback and because of the decline in revenues, it was a time where Hollywood was forced out of its desire to continue making a lot of money to experiment. That gave innovative directors, writers, and producers a way in. You know, people talk about Hollywood's golden age as being like the 1930s, early 40s. I'd say 46 to 64, baby boom time. <laughs> that's when they were making perhaps their greatest films, the best films of Billy Wilder. Yeah. Uh, the, the best films of Fred Zinneman, the best films of Alfred Hitchcock, all coming out of that era, a lot of them black and white, the best musicals of MGM, some of the greatest dramas of the time. And while still under the production code, technically after 54, that really starts to erode, Breen has left the office and you really start to see these powerful films on controversial subjects, some based on novels, some based on plays, some just based on scripts. You see film noir grow into the great genre that it becomes from the 40s up through the end of the 50s. Yeah. Um, you see the kind of suspense thriller that Hitchcock works with. You even see some innovative science fiction when the science fiction is kept at a certain level, if you're not trying to show stuff, you can't show technologically. <laughs> right. And you see, I have some interesting horror films. You have interesting films that come out of the melodramatic tradition. And you have well-made, interesting war films. Mauling all of that over. I mean, 
that period is also my favorite period of films coming out. I just think that they're fascinating. And when I think about From Here to Eternity and then the other films that you've mentioned, like The Young Lions and whatnot, I feel like, and especially with From Here to Eternity, 1953, it's caught in right in the middle of that production code and then the covering of the more seedy material. So, yeah, it's just kind of interesting to see it's pulled both ways. And I think it comes off really dynamic on screen because of that, where you're still using that method of, um, and it's a skill to me to be able to read between the lines and know what's actually going on. And then also them covering it. Yeah. Well, I mean, censorship is not something I'm advocating, Mm -hmm. but in environments where there is somewhat strict censorship, it's not the kind of censorship that was going on, say, in the Soviet Union. Now, that's censorship. Right. What we're talking about is self-imposed censorship in the movie industry with certain kinds of political implications that if you had left-wing sensibilities, you could just be, you know, totally sidelined, you know, blacklisted. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that that's its own kind of censorship, but it's not as brutal. But in environments where there is a kind of imposed censorship, some artists learn to be even more skillful in order to survive and get their messages across. Shakespeare was one of those. Mm -hmm. He lived in a time of very strict censorship. And you could, if you did the wrong thing, end up in the Tower of London. (laughs) Uh, You had to make sure you did things subtly and carefully. A lot of direct, and this extended in back into the 20s 30s etc i mean the, the production code comes in the 30s but people were clever to be able to sidestep it or work around it mm. or to use it in a way that you use the imbalances of the code against itself and you mm. see you can see through it but in the 50s the enforcement was uneven and not pushed with as much rigor Uh, particularly on the sexual and social issues. Mm. So the drug addiction that you see in A Hat Full of Rain and A Man with the Golden Arm. Right. Frank Sinatra. (laughs) Yeah, the prostitution you see in um, Walk on the Wild Side. The just psychological strangeness of uh, something like Sweet Smell of Success, the manipulation, the, the dark psychological energy of it the political and media manipulation of this megalomaniac narcissist, uh, you know, lonesome roads in facing the crowd. These kinds of things are very dark, grim films. You see this coming forward. Now, these are not necessarily films that are getting great big audiences at the time, but they're works of art that are made at the time and sustain themselves later. You can go back and look at them increasingly people are distant from it. Contemporary students are distant from it. They don't know it. Yeah. And there's a problem with recovering it and with recovering the full richer history of the time. It's not just Eugene McCarthy. It's the people confronting McCarthy. Mm -hmm. It's not just HUAC. It's the people opposing HUAC. Um, Amongst them, Lancaster. Yeah, yeah sympathies and wanted to abolish UAC, the House on american Activities Committee. 
it's a time of important Supreme Court decisions on uh, things like segregation, things like that. It's a time of important legislation, both in the 50s, there's civil rights uh, legislation in 57, as well as in 64. It's a lot of what we see as liberatory movements are actually emerging out of the 40s and 50s and reaching fruition in the 60s, and by the late 60s have been weakened. And I think one of the things we forget is what we call the 60s in, in its positive notes is often stuff that was built out of the 40s and 50s. And I think the civil rights movement is one example of that. That came out of a war against a racist regime in Europe. And a lot of effort on the part of the United States to say, we're not racist. Yes. You got, if you go to talk to talk, you got to walk the walk, you got to come home and do something about it. Oh yeah. Wow. So, and it wasn't easy and it, 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 it's a process that still hasn't been fully fulfilled, but progress was made in the forties and fifties gradually and built into the sixties. And then you get pushback against that progress. Uh, by the late 60s, early 70s. But the, the, where you see, I think you're right, from here to eternity is a point in time, like something that lasts, that has its own eternity. Right. It's something that is a point where sexuality, can, you can be more honest about it, uh, where male emotional connections that are not just stereotypical can be acknowledged. Uh, it's not just a buddy movie. It's a movie about men who shape their lives together in a community of men and in relationships with other men. And there is, you know, when I use the term homosocial, I mean that it is uh, a one gendered or one sexual identity, mm-hmm. multiple genders in the sense of there are men there who are uh, uh, cisgendered men who are bisexual men who are gay in that world, though they couldn't come forward as gay, though they couldn't come forward as uh, bisexual. And you see the dark side of it too. You see the male machismo, you see the, you know, all that emphasis on boxing, fighting, boxing, fighting, boxing, uh, male pride, and the intensity of male competition. All that's there. Uh, but also male nurturing, you know, Warden nurtures Pruitt. He mentors Pruitt. He's like a father figure, a big brother figure, and almost in some respects, like a lover. Um, There's an intimacy there, not a sexual intimacy. It's an emotional intimacy. And for somebody like Warden to have that, that's important. And I think one of the things that the, their relationships with the two women shape in the, in the novel and the film is they open the men up to that side of themselves more. They become better men with men because of having been with women. They have to go back to be with the men because what they're called to be is men with men. Yeah. Women. You know, as a if I'm a woman in 1953 going to see this, I can see where this would appeal to me as well watching such a 
masculine community because you're right. There's so many different roles that everyone takes on. And, and you can see how Alma lives up to her name. Yes. She wants to nurture and take care of Pruitt. It's her house, which she shares with somebody else. And, you know, she's there mothering him. She's feeding him. She's, she's taking care of him. When he's wounded, she's taking care of him. She's n- the nurturer. And that draws that out of her. And he relies on that. And Karen needs a man who can celebrate her femininity mm-hmm. without insulting it. Mm. And that's what um, that's war of what Milt can do. Such a classic film. And I really hope that people do stay in touch with it through today for sure. I can absolutely see why it was such a big success when it came out. So kind of in wrapping up, where do you see the military film genre going today? And how do you think it's weaning in popularity, growing in popularity? What do you think is capable today maybe that we weren't able to do in the 1950s? Well, first of all, I think the military genre over cross mm-hmm. is still very important in Hollywood and in the culture. Whether you're talking about Top Gun, Gun <laughs> 2 or The Hurt Locker mm-hmm. or uh, whatever. I mean, for the past century or more, America has been involved with multiple wars, you know, going back to the turn of the century, Spanish-American War, Little Wars, Client Wars, World War One, World War II, the Cold War and all the client wars there, Korea, Vietnam. And now wars in the Middle East. Um, interestingly enough, the arc of post-World War II films from the late 40s up through the mid-70s is very clearly a specific time and era. And you stop seeing very many World War II films in the 80s. You see films about other things. You see Vietnam films, which are mostly anti-war films. Mm-hmm. And then you see films that are like, say, 1985, I think it was 85, the first Top Gun. Right. And, you know, which is like the military now, they're Cold War era films or 1990, Hunt for Red October, things like that. They're usually very supportive of the military. But in 1988, um, Variety newspaper printed a headline for a story, you know, World War II dead as a genre. Ten years later, Steven Spielberg produces, directs, and releases Saving Private Ryan. Huge one. Yeah. And so you get the neo-World War II film. And for the past 24 years, we have had a steady stream of World War II films. Some better, some worse. Terrence Malick released his version, which is very uniquely Terrence Malick's version, of The Thin Red Line. You know, the James Jones novel, which interestingly also renewed some interest in James Jones. A year hasn't gone by in the past 24 years where we have not had World War II films. One of the more recent ones is like Greyhound, the one with Tom Hanks about the destroyer commander shepherding a convoy across the Atlantic. We have World War II miniseries. We have World War II um, various kinds of things on, well, Cable things, HBO's Band of Brothers in 2001, which was Hanks and Spielberg again, or The Pacific in 2010. 
So the World War II genre is alive and well. What do you think contributed to audiences being so re-responsive to it when Spielberg revived it, basically? During the 1980s and 1990s, you hit the 40th and 50th anniversaries of World War II. One of my hypotheses about this is the films of that first era, mid-40s, let's say, well, the 40s, the wartime up through the mid-70s, was about a certain kind of almost triumphalist or celebratory, even when it was darker, notion about the war. Mm-hmm. Vietnam sort of undercuts that. People are tired of war and tired of representations of war. And the Vietnam films you see from late 70s and into the mid 80s are generally negative about the war, like, say, Platoon, Mm -hmm. uh, Deer Hunter, um, films like that. Apocalypse Now. Yeah, I was just about to say (laughs) Apocalypse Now. (laughs) But what I the way I phrase it is. The veterans of World War Two came home. Nobody wants to hear about trauma. They want to hear about celebrating the victory. So the trauma is suppressed. They don't write their trauma narratives for the most part, least not in nonfiction. Somewhat it emerges in fiction, somewhat it emerges in poetry, but that's got a small sliver of the influence culturally on how the war is narrated, which is usually film and then television. But what happens is I say the World War II generation taught their sons how to fight. Those sons went to Vietnam. They came back. There was no victory to celebrate. It was a very uneven experience. Both generations were traumatized. But there was no cultural narrative of victory to celebrate the end of Vietnam. Mm -hmm. There was an open cultural space. And many of these people told or wrote their trauma narratives. Mm -hmm. Things like, and and both both in fiction and in nonfiction, people like Tim O'Brien, People like Philip Caputo, uh, people putting together oral histories. Right. It's after those come out that you really start to see the darker trauma narratives, nonfiction, of World War II. The veterans in the 50s and 60s, in the 1980s, 1990s, started producing that. The neo-World War II film accepts and embraces that darkness. It embraces the trauma. Take a look at Spielberg's Saving Private Ryan. Critics have said, oh, this is just a celebration of the war again, blah, blah, blah. No. The flag you see at the end is suffused with light. And some people say, oh, this is like this glory symbol. It's also a symbol of the colors washed out. Mm-hmm. It's like it's bled white. It's mm-hmm. an ambiguous image. The man, Ryan, in the present frame, is asking, was I a good man? Did I live a good life? His family can't adequately answer that. The only people who can answer it are under the ground there. He lives with survivor guilt. He lives with that trauma. That film embraces that, as does um, Band of Brothers, you know, yeah. as does The Pacific, that other series that came out nine years later. So these are things that are driven by this different vision and give you a more complex view of the war. They are celebrating, in a sense, the greatest generation by acknowledging the cost they paid. Mm. The other thing that drives, though, is 9-11 and post-9-11. Mm. 
Right, right. In other words, we're attacked and now we're in response to that. So the contemporary military film, in part, you got the World War II genre, but you've also got the Middle Eastern genre. That's the new Cold War. That's the place where the Cold War is driven. The neo-World War II film, uh, the War on Terror films, and there's one other thing I'd like to add to this, which seems to come out of nowhere. <laughs> it's the Marvel Universe. World War II and a constant ongoing Cold War that becomes pan-galactic and pan-universal, and the Marvel Universe. It's the Cold War written across the whole universe, <laughs> kind of the way Star Wars is, too. Uh, it's this constant battle with evil. But the Marvel Universe ties it specifically to Earth, and it ties it to characters in World War II. It ties it to this post-World War II Nazi conspiracy that's Hydra. It ties it to Captain America. For sure. Traumatized World War II veteran and the Winter Soldier, his friend Bucky, who's a traumatized World War II veteran. You got all that interwoven into the Marvel Universe. And so the Marvel Universe is another important thread in this braided narrative of war. Dr. Casargola, thank you so, so much. I, I could talk to you forever on this topic. It's so fascinating to me. I've, I've learned so much talking to you. Well, thank you. Yeah. I can't wait to recheck out some of these movies, given the context of the history, the considerations of novel to movie adaptations. I just, it's really, really amazing. And I really can't wait to have you on again sometime. I, I, I love being on your podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much, everyone, for listening in. If you want to like this episode, you can do so on whatever platform you're watching it. Share with a friend. If you want to connect with us on social media, we are at Old Soul Movie Podcast on Instagram, Old Soul Pod on Twitter, and the Old Soul Movie Podcast on Facebook. Uh, maybe comment and let us know what your favorite military movie is or your thoughts in general. We would love to hear it. Thank you all so much and see you next time. Bye.